Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Two guests today. First, journalist Raven Rakia will report on the nationwide prison strike that's been underway since August 21st. And then Assad Haider will talk about his book, Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, published in May by Verso. First, the prison strike. The strike, slated to run from August 21st through September 9th, was called by a group of South Carolina prisoners, jailhouse lawyers speak, after a riot at the prison in that state in April, which left seven inmates dead and 17 seriously injured. No correctional officers were hurt. There was a similar strike in 2016 in which 24,000 inmates at 20 prisons took part. September 9th, the day when the strike ends, is the 47th anniversary of the Attica prison uprising in upstate New York, the most intense such rebellion in modern history, which saw over 2,000 inmates take over the prison and hold staff and visitors hostage. Their demands included better legal representation, improved medical care and visiting conditions, an end to the punishment of prisoners for political activity, the opportunity to work for decent wages, better educational options, better food, and an end to brutal treatment. The uprising was violently suppressed, with 10 prison employees and 33 inmates killed. There were some improvements in conditions in New York State as a result of the uprising, but four decades later, with three times as many people behind bars, prison conditions remain a national disgrace. As you'll hear in the following interview, the list of demands in this strike isn't all that different from the Attica demands. Raven Rakia is a journalist with The Appeal, an online publication that covers criminal justice. She's also written for The Nation and The Intercept. Raven Rakia. How does a prison strike come to be? What's the background? This time around, the prison strike happened after the jailhouse lawyer speak, which is a group of prisoners in South Carolina decided to announce it, to announce a national prison strike after there was a prison riot at their prison that they're staying in. So usually what happens is, and the same thing happened in 2016 as well, um, people in prisoners in Alabama um, announced the nationwide prison strike, which was then sent to people in different prisons via outside organizers. So that's usually how it happens. How does one organize a strike for people behind bars? It must be very hard to uh, communicate. Most of the strikes in the past five years that I know of have been organized and announced by people on the inside. And the out, what the organizers on the outside do is they help get the information to um, other prisoners in different areas. So after, say, the jailhouse lawyer speak announces the strike, outside organizers will then try to find ways to get in other prisons via newsletters, via just regular snail mail, um, on phone calls. And in that way, the, the news of the prison strike spreads a little bit. Of course, a lot of prisoners don't find out about it until it's on the news. That's another way prisoners find out about the strike. And some prisoners have cell phones, so they're able to communicate with each other without outside help. But not all prisoners are able to get cell phones, of course. And I imagine the prison authorities do not uh, welcome this kind of activity. Yeah, so in most states, Participating in or conducting a work stoppage is grounds for solitary confinement just on its own. And so anytime there is this sort of work stoppage or disruption, the prison's go-to is usually to lock down the prison or lock down the unit where the work stoppage is happening. And then along with that, the people that they think are quote-unquote leaders will likely get thrown in solitary confinement, unfortunately. And how do prisoners strike? I imagine a lot of people on the outside just think prisoners sit around in their cells all day doing not much of anything. What's different about a strike? So a lot of prisoners work 
and they have a job just like anyone else. It could be a job within the prison, like working in the kitchen, sweeping up cells, working with different inmates in different programs, or it could be a job for an outside company. Um, a lot of people in prison work on farms. They'll work for companies like McDonald's and Victoria's Secret and that sort of thing. So not all prisoners have jobs, but a lot of them do. And so a work stoppage would mean that in the morning when they're expected to go to their assigned job, they would just stay in their cell instead. And uh, what about those who don't have jobs? Are there uh, actions they can take? Yeah, of course. So jailhouse lawyers speak suggested four actions that different prisoners can take. So there's also, along with work stoppages, there are also hunger strikes, um, boycotting commissary, and sit-in or demonstrations. So what prisoners can do is during, like, say, lunch or dinner when they're all in the cafeteria, they can then do a sit-in, refuse to go back to their cells when they're supposed to, and that is also a type of protest. This strike is supposed to occur uh, over a course of a couple of weeks. Uh, we're, what, I guess somewhere around the middle of it now. Uh, what, uh, what can you say about the extent of it and how many states, how many prisons? Well, organizers are just hearing about what some prison t- prisoners have started doing. Um, we're still going to hear more in the upcoming weeks. It usually takes a long time for information to get out of the prison, especially when a, something like a work stoppage happens. But for now, we organizers have announced that they've heard of activity in the following states. Washington, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, California, Ohio, Indiana, New Mexico, Florida, Texas, as well as one jail in Canada. So it's pretty exciting that we already know that much information about it since it's only been a week. And what about uh, immigrants detained by ICE? Are they part of the scope of this, this uh, activity? Oh, yeah. So... In one of those, at least one of those states in Washington, there's a detention center where over 200 immigrant detainees went on hunger strike, which is incredibly exciting. I think that is the most number that we have heard of so far. So that's great. And um, so I confirmed that at least some people were on hunger strike recently. When it first started, it was 200. I think now it's down to six. And um, it's at the Northwest Detention Center in Tacoma, Washington. What are the demands of the strike? There are 10 national demands that um, jailhouse lawyers speak put out after they had spoken to prisoners in different states. I can list them. It includes improving the conditions of prisons and prison policies that recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women, an immediate end to prison slavery. Um, The third one is for the Prison Litigation Reform Act to be rescinded. The fourth is the truth in, is for the Truth in Sentencing Act to also be rescinded, which is mainly different state laws. That one's not a federal law. And then after that, their demands also include an immediate end to the racial overcharging, over-sentencing, and parole denials of black and brown humans, an immediate end to racist gang enhancement laws, rehabilitation programs for everyone despite their label as a violent offender, more funding for rehabilitation services, reinstatement of Pell Grants, and the last one is for all confined citizens to have their voting rights restored. That, on the face of it, seemed like a pretty reasonable and modest set of demands. It's not like they're calling for an end to incarceration itself. Uh, how did this, this set of demands emerge? 
Yeah, so Jailhouse Lawyers Speak is the one who put out these demands, but it was after they spoke to different prisoners and different prisons across the country. So that's why they really tried to make it national, and they didn't want to focus on just one issue. As you can see, like, the demands really cover, like, a whole swath of human rights issues that occur in prisons. And it's the, the demands basically call for human rights for people who are in prison. I mean, they're not calling for anything that most humans in the U.S. wouldn't expect. Um, in terms of, like, ending prison slavery, they're asking for every prisoner to be, to be paid the minimum wage in their state. So um, if you really look at these demands, they're basically just asking for their basic human rights. Prison slavery. Let, let's talk some about work in prison. What kinds of wages do people get paid, and uh, what kind of work do they do? Yeah, so the wages are usually very low. Prisoners can get anywhere from $0.10 cents an hour to $0 an hour to $2 an hour for extreme work like fighting forest fighters. Or, sorry, fighting forest fires. But, yeah, and so it varies by state. Um, but for some states, what happens is they say the company that's paying for the prison's work pays minimum wage, and then the prison takes out most of that money for, like, room and board and that sort of thing. Other places just just pay that low rate um, that's below minimum wage. So it definitely varies by state and also varies by what job they're doing, of course. And uh, the first demand uh, to uh, recognize the humanity of imprisoned men and women what exactly uh, we're talking about? What kinds of practices that uh, the prisons uh, uh, perform what are we talking about here? When they say they want to improve the conditions of prisons to recognize their humanity, I would say they're talking about things like solitary confinement, where humans are basically put in a small cage or cell for most of the day, for all but one hour of the day. And even small amounts of time in that cell can really cause mental health damage that um, that will affect them for the rest of their life. And that's like one example of a prison condition that does currently doesn't recognize the humanity of men and women behind bars. Obviously conditions that affect people's mental health to the point where they're completely different from the way they came in does not recognize the humanity of, of people in prison. So it's, it's those types of things that they want to change. Some prisons, especially in the South, have a huge problem with overcrowding so they're trying to fit you know twice as many people in this in a prison um than they should and that also can cause really terrible conditions in terms of cleanliness and health as well as just humans being too close to each other it, it can cause fights um if it's the summer and it's and it's very hot out that can also contribute to it um, and i think those are the type of conditions that led to the riot in April, which is when Jailhouse Lawyers Speak called the strike to begin with. Now, who is Jailhouse Lawyers Speak exactly? So that's a, a group of people in prison, in South Car mostly in South Carolina. They're jailhouse lawyers, which means they help other prisoners with their lawsuits and other legal issues, as well as they, they will do their own lawsuits. It could be anything from writing a lawsuit about the conditions in the prison and violating and the prison violating their constitutional rights to helping uh, another prisoner with an appeal for for their conviction. I was wondering about number nine, Pell Grants being reinstated. What is the relevance of uh, Pell Grants to people in prison? Pell Grants 
will basically ensure that people in prison can actually get an education. And the reason why a lot of people in prison think this is important is while they're in prison, they want to be able to get a job when they come out, and they, they want it so their t- it doesn't seem like their time is wasted for however long they stayed inside. And um, Pell Grants will allow people in prison to take college classes, possibly get a degree, and that sort of thing, which could help them tremendously once they get out of prison. And those used to be available, but they've been uh, disappeared? Exactly, yes. It seems generally that, uh, you know, as the tough on crime uh, um, policies got tougher and meaner, um, that uh, any effort to educate or rehabilitate prisoners has been thrown by the wayside. Is that correct? Yeah, it's definitely, with this tough on crime rhetoric, it's rehabilitation services, as well as things like Pell Grants, have basically disappeared. And it's, it's interesting that it came at a time where they were also changing the language behind prisons, like changing it to the Department of Correction. Um, in Ohio, it's called the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction. But across the board, prisoners basically say that rehabilitation is, uh, doesn't exist in prison. Yeah, it just seems like it's all about uh, revenge and punitiveness. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so what can people on the outside do uh, to help this struggle, not just these couple of weeks, but, you know, over the longer term? Yeah, well, currently what they can do is they can participate in phone zap. So um, IWOC, Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, which is part of the industrial workers of the world, has started organizing phone zaps where you call a Department of Correction in a specific state and ask about whatever is happening. They give you um, a script to read. And that definitely helps because it shows the Department of Correction that people on the outside are paying attention and listening to people in prison on the inside. And so that can really like light a fire under their um, butt, sorry for my <laughs> language. But um, that's the, the one thing that people can do right away. And it's very important. Um, and then in the future, you know, pen, prison pen pals are definitely the best way to support someone inside right away. Um, you can do that through Black and Pink, which is another prisoner rights organization. And you can also follow Industrial Workers of the World on um, Twitter and Facebook to figure out ways to organize in the future. I was Raven Rakia, a journalist with The Appeal, an online publication that covers crime and punishment. You can find it online at theappeal.org. Raven Rakia mentioned phone zaps, coordinated call-ins to prison authorities as a way to support the strike and prisoner rights over the longer term. You can find out about these and more at incarceratedworkers.org, the website of the Incarcerated Workers Organizing Committee, a project of the Industrial Workers of the World. She also mentioned Black and Pink's Pen Pal program. That group describes itself as an open family of LGBTQ prisoners and free world allies who support each other. You can find them on the web at blackandpink.org. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break.
That was some of the fourth movement of Shostakovich's string quartet number eight, performed by the Sorrel Quartet, regarded as his most popular, despite his deep melancholy. The movement incorporates two tunes expressing the misery of incarceration. One, the revolutionary song exhausted by the hardships of prison, which is a favorite of Lenin's and sung at his funeral, as well as a quotation from Shostakovich's own opera, Lady Macbeth of the Mitzengs District, a composition whose modernism annoyed Stalin and caused the composer some political troubles. Next, Assad Haider on identity. Conflicts over identity politics, a rather vague term despite its wide use, which were popular in the 1990s and receded some of the 2000s, are intensely back today. They manifested themselves during the 2016 presidential campaign as Hillary Clinton's supporters tried to dismiss the Bernie Sanders challenge by appealing to issues of race and gender the Sanders campaign allegedly overlooked. This was exemplified by Hillary's famous question, if we broke up the big banks tomorrow, would that end racism? That was a largely cynical move on her part. She had no interest in challenging financial power, and her own history of support for mass incarceration and welfare reform undermined her credentials as an enemy of racism. On the other hand, Sanders supporters often too blithely dismissed concerns of race, gender, and sexual identity as if repeatedly intoning the phrase Medicare for all could solve all these problems. These fissures have continued to haunt left politics today, even with a string of electoral victories by insurgent candidates and with the stunning growth in the Democratic Socialists of America, now with over 50,000 members, probably the largest serious left formation in the U.S. since the heyday of the Communist Party. It's sometimes painful to work through these differences, and some people would rather ignore the problems or denounce their opponents as hopelessly wrong. That's bad. These are real issues, and we have to talk about them. Assad Haider, the founding editor of Viewpoint magazine, viewpointmag.com on the web, does just that in Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, published in May by Verso. A review of the book on the Jacobin magazine website posted the other day badly misrepresented the book and tried to dismiss Haider as some sort of troublesome identitarian. As you'll hear in the following interview, he's not. We need books like this and conversations like this if we're ever going to make any progress. Assad Haider. Let's start with some definitions. Identity politics. Identity and identity politics. These are extremely fraught terms. People use them without really seeming to know what they mean. What do you mean by it? Well, that's an interesting point that you bring up definitions because I'm somewhat resistant to providing definitions. And one of the things that I do in the book is I sort of gesture towards the genealogy of the term identity politics. Uh, it's not a complete one. I do a kind of jump cut. I start in 1977 with what really appears to be the introduction of the term by the Combahee River Collective. And they wrote in uh, this text called A Black Feminist Statement about how their experience in social movements had shown them that uh, movements that take on a particular exclusionary identity will often obscure the differences within a group. And so in the black liberation movement, the specific interests of, of black women were obscured. And once again, in the feminist movement, uh, with the hegemony of white women, the interests of black women were obscured. So the idea of identity politics in this statement isn't a general theory of identity. It's saying that the agency of black women is something that can be articulated and defended as it is, and that only when that happens can there be meaningful coalitions. They were explicitly anti-capitalist, right? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think it's taken as an assumed starting point in that text. Uh, I mean, I think it's hard to miss, uh, but people may read it now and think it's underemphasized. I think it was taken for granted. And now um, we have a, a word, uh, a concept associated with Kimberly Crenshaw originally, intersectionality. What 
does that mean to you? And uh, how does it compare with these, these notions of identity? Intersectionality makes a very similar point, and Crenshaw in her articles, I mean, she was coming out of legal studies, so there's a kind of specific uh, embeddedness of this in uh, the courtroom context. But the more general argument is that conceptions of identity frequently conflate members of a group who are different, or as I was talking about before, they subordinate more marginal members of that group. And so intersectionality was a way of breaking out of a single determinant for an identity and demonstrating that what one wonderful way she has of putting it is that coalitions go all the way down, that, you know, even a group, a single group identity is already a coalition across differences. Now, that she's coming out of a, a legal world, uh, and uh, I believe the original Law Review article was about a, a lawsuit being filed on the behalf of black women. Auto workers are being laid off, and they had no standing to sue as black women, just as black people or women, but not as both. But what's one of the things that struck me about that article was that she wasn't really challenging scarcity. She wasn't challenging the layoffs. She was just challenging the, the legal basis on which one could challenge those things. Yeah, I think that's the constraint of a courtroom context. I'm sure she would challenge those things speaking in another context. But I think that the the sort of structure of the courtroom in which there's someone who says that they've been injured in some way and they're uh, demanding restitution for it, that's been kind of generalized as a model of politics for us. And so if you can say that you've been injured on the basis of your group identity, uh, that's the way you become political, and you can demand recognition, and you can demand redress for your injury, and uh, that's the model we have. And ultimately, it's a model which leaves the existing structure of society intact. Yeah, you make some use of uh, Wendy Brown's notion of injury, and also uh, Judith Butler's uh, use of uh, how that kind of injury can become a cornerstone of one's identity, and uh, the identity uh, or one's subjectivity uh, is found in, in, in kind of subjection or, or, or injury. Could, could you talk about that some more, like how that injury becomes definitional? This is a complicated thing that results from the way that particular identities are formed out of relations of domination and subordination. Uh, those identities become part of who we are, and we can recognize ourselves in them and even become attached to them because they're the standpoint from which uh, we participate in social life. But nevertheless, they were created by this relationship of, of domination. And so our attachment to that identity also becomes an attachment to that relation. And that's the problem. That's the difficult thing, because on the one hand, uh, the, the reclaiming of, of that injured identity can be a starting point in uh, recognizing and contesting that relation of domination, but at the same time, it presumes it and so can ultimately reinforce it. Much of your book is about race. Parts of it can be applied to other identity categories like gender or sexuality or sexual preference or whatever. But, you know, most of the book is about race. So let's talk about race, which is at, at the same time something very real in our lives and in our heads. In our, and at the, same, at the same time, its origin was invented. It has no biological basis. So there's a paradox of trying to fight racism. And in fighting it, one can sometimes reinforce the very thing we're trying to fight. Like, how do we think about race in that kind of context? Well, uh, you've put it very well. I would say that uh, it's important to understand race as something which results from material relations. It's not something that's just in our heads or uh, much worse, something that's in our genes. 
uh, it's something which results from a material material relation, once again, of domination and subordination, not in general, but of a specific kind, a specific type. And that's a material relation that, if you look at history, is fundamentally tied up with econ economic relations, but not reducible to them. Uh, you have to be able to talk about uh, a relation of causality between things without saying one is reducible to the other. And so it's a problem to talk about race in general, as though all of the different cases stretching across human history could all belong to one unitary category. And I think sometimes if we talk about race as an identity, if we use the category of identity, which is something that uh, is sort of uh, transcendent of history, time, and place, then um, we don't get at this material analysis. For, for that reason, I think that identity actually isn't a good starting point for thinking about race. What we have to do is look at the material relations of domination and subordination, and from that derive a theory of specific instances of race. And I talk in my book about the specific instance, which is colonial Virginia, and the way that indentured servants and, and chattel slaves were differentiated through racial categories. That's one specific uh, instance of that. And of course, there's, there's a famous passage from Barbara Fields where she says uh, people talk as if the whole point of slavery was creating white supremacy when it was fact to us about uh, growing cotton and making money from it. Yeah, uh, it's it's a great line and it points to, uh, I mean, it, it's not as though this in any way mitigates the the incredible barbarism of slavery. I mean, it, it, the, the, pointing to its economic, its profit motive uh, just shows what an extreme uh, kind of crime it was. And um, it also allows us to see how we, we know that the economic kind of character of slavery is fundamental in the history of capitalist development in the U.S. and also uh, in terms of its location in the capitalist world market. Slavery was fundamental to the history of capitalism. But it, it also was the site of the generation of particular laws and ideologies that were about the inferiority of Africans. And in that sense, it produced, it, it produced both of those things. Yeah, the, the whole concept of race was generated side by side with the generation of that notion of inferiority. Yeah, and it was also generated alongside uh, the invention of the white race, which it's easy to leave that out. And, and there, it's very common to talk in our various political circles as though race has entered into the room once we're talking about people of color, once we're talking about racism. Well, there's also a white race at play that we have to talk about, and that's also a historical construction because it's constructed from the gathering together of immigrants from all over Europe who in Europe were part of different hierarchical relations of racial domination themselves. And so in the U.S., they're gathered together into a white race whose function is specifically to uh, exclude uh, African slaves from citizenship and the category of the human. And that invention, while it might uh, provide some superficial dividends uh, to uh, white people, um, actually holds them back over the longer term, correct? Yeah, I mean, the absolutely, there are short-term benefits and privileges which white people have throughout history avidly participated in, uh, or, or sort of have, they have avidly participated in the uh, increased oppression of black people and other people of color uh, in order to win those benefits. But in the long run, it is completely damaging for the vast majority of white people who are still exploited by capitalism to fail to recognize that 
they have uh, a common interest to build uh, with people of color who are also subject in a more extreme way to these forms of exploitation. You also, uh, you take on or uh, take apart the um, Peggy McIntosh, that's her name, right? The author of that, uh, the, uh, the backpack of, uh, of white privilege. What about this concept of white privilege, which is you know, all over the social media these days? What about white privilege and, and her development of the concept? Well, I would say that's an example of going the reverse way from the way that I've outlined, in which you start with material relations which generate racism and race, and then you can go uh, you know, and uh, add back layers of concreteness to look at specific instances in a society. This one starts from, let's say, from identity. It starts from the sense of self that a person has and their sort of uh, um, reflections on themselves. Uh, which result in a list of different characteristics of white privilege, well, that doesn't get you the whole history that has created whiteness as a category and that determines what white privilege is and what it does in a society. And, um, of course, you know, the the idea of white privilege is often traced back to W.B. Du Bois, who is uh, drawing it out of an extremely uh, complex historical analysis uh, in Black Reconstruction of the white worker, the black worker, the planter, and this whole history of uh, political contestation, that's the starting point when you want to figure out what white privilege is. I was speaking of uh, Assad Hader, uh, author of Mistaken Identity, published recently by Verso. Uh, now, let's talk some about 60s black politics, since we're observing the 50th anniversary of a lot of those uh, events of 1968. Um, the Black Panther Party uh, had one approach uh, to black politics. At the same time, uh, there was developing a uh, what people called somewhat scornfully a pork chop nationalism. Could you talk about those uh, different kinds of approaches to uh, developing black power? Well, in the Black Panther Party, there was a kind of uh, division, a, a dividing line that was introduced within the idea of nationalism. And that was between revolutionary nationalism and, as you said, pork chop nationalism or cultural nationalism. And the idea was that revolutionary nationalism, Huey Newton says it in an interview, it has to be socialist because it has to account for the fact that the masses of black people are exploited by capitalism and that if they have a leadership which is not looking to end that exploitation, their interests will not be realized. And the problem with cultural nationalism was that by talking about a kind of unitary African culture uh, that was, you know, sort of um, reproduced in the U.S. or in an international level, it obscured those divisions. And uh, it ultimately would lead to a situation, which they, they gave the example of Haiti, in which you had uh, a black dictator over a black population. Uh, and that was not liberation. And you spent some time uh, tracing the uh, the evolution of Amiria Baraka uh, from quasi-white hipster Leroy Jones uh, to um, uh, the Marxist uh, revolutionary Inur. Could you talk some about what's exemplary about his career? Well, yes, it's 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 really a remarkable trajectory, and uh, a lot of people don't ask me about the initial hipster phase. Uh, which is so fascinating and which is, you know, a period in which he's doing a lot of uh, amazing work in terms of poetry and music criticism. But it's, it's, it's a phase in which he's ambivalent and he's putting his sense of self into question because he's a, he's a, a black poet who is part of a community of white poets. And uh, in this very white social circle uh, in New York City, and 
he's not seeing himself recognized there. And he's seeing the emergence of all these movements uh, that are claiming greater power for black people. And this puts him into a crisis. And the crisis results in a turn, a turn to cultural nationalism. And so this is, you know, if you read about cultural nationalism, mainly through the criticisms made by the Black Panther Party, it's very interesting to look at his own experience of cultural nationalism as, he, as it evolves. Uh, and it meant, you know, um, it, uh, connecting with exactly who um, the Panthers were talking about, Ron Karenga, who had a group called the US Organization. And uh, Baraka established his own version of that in Newark and wanted to turn Newark into a kind of, uh, you know, sometimes they would write it as the new arc. It was a kind of uh, place where um, this, this messianic vision would be realized. Uh, but he came to be disillusioned by cultural nationalism. And it was precisely because of the problem that we were discussing earlier, which is that he saw the rise of black elites, uh, particularly Kenneth Gibson, whose mayoral campaign in Newark had been fundamentally supported by Baraka's organization, the Congress of African People. Uh, he saw that uh, when Gibson came into power, it was business as usual. And worse, it was at a time in which um, there were fiscal crises all over the place. Uh, this is a time of crisis and restructuring in, in uh, the advanced capital societies. And so the costs of the crisis would be transferred onto the constituency that had put uh, Gibson politicians like him in power. And so this is the point at which Baraka makes the connection, not so much through the Panthers, but through uh, his understanding of the anti-colonial movements uh, of the 60s and 70s, uh, he, he, he makes a turn to Marxism. And um, I think it's an extraordinary development and um, the Marxist period of his career is greatly underappreciated. I think all the um, books are out of print, um, but if you can find them, a lot of people will malign those poems, the Marxist period poems, but I think they are to be resolutely defended. Well, he stayed a Marxist to the end, didn't he? He did, absolutely, yes. Uh, you know, um, I mean, very committed. Let's talk about some of the uh, tendencies in black politics today. Uh, you have uh, several pages on uh, Afro-pessimism, which is a very curious phenomenon. I don't really fully understand it, but uh, what is Afro-pessimism? Who, who invented it, and uh, what do you find uh, are its problems? Afro-pessimism comes from the work of Frank Wilderson, and there are other figures who have uh, joined afterwards. And... Um, it is a kind of theory which takes as its starting point the idea that slavery is a kind of social death. Uh, it's, a bit, and it's based on natal alienation, the, the fact that, uh, that of becoming someone else's property from birth. And this condition is sort of turned into this ontological kind of philosophical state in which um, blackness becomes the uh, kind of object of negation for the whole of existing society of what they call civil society why is not totally clear but um so the whole society is built on the annihilation of blackness the negation of blackness and so uh black people are excluded from the category of the human and it's not uh the, the political response is not to claim the humanity of black people, but to uh, deny the category of the human and to destroy the whole society. I mean, you know, this is at a level of academic discourse. It's not, there's nothing programmatic uh, or um, uh, directly political about it. Of course, it was taken up 
in a lot of activist scenes um, and this language of anti-blackness uh, and of and of, and speaking of black bodies rather than black people, you know, Ta-Nehisi Coates does that. It was a way of really obfuscating um, the reality of race and um, the, the potential political programs that would be effective in ending racism. Yeah, that, that term black bodies is something that confuses me. I mean, it seems to, I guess, be a nod to Foucault maybe, um, but, um, but it also uh, treats people as nothing but bodies and not full human beings, uh, which is a kind of inversion of the white racist view of the world in which black people are nothing but uh, baby machines or, or criminals. Yeah, I think there's often a lot of weird um, toying with white racist views of the world, a kind of parasitism, parasitism on those views. I think in some ways it's true of identity politics itself because, you know, it, it didn't have like some kind of continuous public life after 1977. I think it really came back up again uh, in the mid-90s with uh, Todd Gitlin's book, Twilight of Common Dreams, and, you know, the culture wars. And I think um, a lot of what is um, claimed as identity politics, a lot of the time when people have defended identity politics since the mid-90s, they have just taken Gitlin's version and put, you know, put a plus where the enemy put minus. Yeah, that seems like a lot of politics. But then that goes back to the, the, the Brown and, and Butler stuff about clinging to your injury as your source of identity. Yeah, I mean, I suppose that's why it became appealing to respond to it that way. But a lot of times when debates happen around identity, you can see this with uh, what I've talked about in terms of black nationalism. The distinction between an elite, uh, an elite leadership stratum, and then the mass stratum underneath it is not unique to black nationalism. That is a problem that has existed in the labor movement and the socialist movement for centuries. So, I mean, this is a general problem. And uh, it's a problem that uh, different organizations have to address, not only when we're talking about race. And uh, in the case of someone like Gitwin, if you focus on, well, this is a white man, you don't get to the fact that his politics are very bad for many other reasons. I was speaking of the Saad Haider, who's the author of Mistaken Identity uh, from Verso. Now let's talk about transcending these divisions without losing sight of the reality underlying them, by which I mean. Uh, there are some people who want to say, let's forget about all these identity concerns and focus on universal demands and uh, class demands, the economic demands. By doing so, they often like, pretend that there are no um, injuries of race or gender or no, no, no such hierarchies. How do we think about these things so that we acknowledge that these um, hierarchies and discriminations are real without uh, being caught up by them so that we can't make any kind of unified movement? I mean, how can we have a universalism that's real and not uh, one that depends upon erasure? Well, I think there's a problem in assuming that any demand is inherently universal an economic demand, it may be universal, but if you look at the kinds of demands that come up uh, in the United States, uh, many of them uh, are certainly very valuable demands, but none of them has anything to do with the vast majority of the poverty and suffering that exists in this world, uh, that exists because of the capitalist system. Uh, and so there are always some form of, uh, there's always some kind of decision made with a demand, uh, and there are lines that are drawn. And so the, the universality is something that is contested. The, the universality is something that has to be determined. It's not inherent in anything. And 
we also have to understand that particular demands uh, can't be equated with the whole movement. The movement has to exist beyond one particular demand. And uh, the choice of what demands are put forth and are prioritized, that is a question of political strategy. It's not a question of what uh, is the inevitable result of human nature or something like that. Uh, you know, I don't know what the theories are about the inherent universalities of a particular demand. I think that a struggle against racism is a universal demand uh, because it speaks to the fact that certain people are excluded from self-governance and uh, are subjected to um, heightened levels of capitalist exploitation. And fighting against that is something that is universally relevant for any socialist movement. So I think there has to be a more complicated discussion about what universality is and what demands are universal. And there has to be uh, an acknowledgement of the strategic character of demands. Well, what do you mean by that? That a demand is not inherently the right demand. Uh, it's something which is determined on the basis of your existing political conjuncture and is going to be part of a series of demands if you have a project of overall social change. So you can't just assume that one demand is universal and it's the one that we're all going to center around. You have to determine its, its strategic efficacy as part of a longer process. You write about uh, divisions that you experienced uh, around uh, the Occupy movement in the Bay Area and also uh, around uh, Black Lives Matter politics uh, in the Bay Area. Talk about some of the, the, these divisions. Like, What was motivating people rather than coming up with some sort of attempt to, to unify the struggle, there seemed to be an attempt to divide the struggle. Why, why is that? Well, I think that um, there's a general problem of uh, ways of relating with one another in politics um, that are highly destructive and, and encourage very, uh, let's say, negative affects. And that's, that's something that really undermines a lot of movements. And sometimes it's articulated with particular identity categories, though that hasn't always been the case uh, in the history of the left. But uh, in this case, you know, I think I, I think all of these, uh, especially in the U.S. context, they grow out of a kind of powerlessness. Uh, when movements run up against their strategic limits or realize that they don't have an adequate organizational form to last beyond one spectacular action uh, or something like that, there is often a tendency for uh, for a group to um, turn that that uh, frustration uh, and sadness and antagonism inward. And what happened uh, in my experiences was that I think uh, because of this feeling of powerlessness, people began to assert identity categories and they began to claim an injury in exactly the way we've been talking about in a context where it did not apply. Where, where, where no such injury had happened. And uh, as a result, these uh, negative affects came to dominate uh, the, the, the collective, and there was no opportunity to build an organization and, and to build a structure which would allow us to relate to each other in different ways and actually arbitrate problems of this kind. And I think this is a very widespread problem uh, in uh, political organizing, and I think also it's unfortunate if um, that way of that style of politics gets equated with anything that's about race or anything that's about gender and so on. That's a particular style of politics that should have no connection with a movement against uh, racism, which 
should, if it wants to be effective, uh, actually draw in the broadest possible coalition of people. Towards the end of the book, you uh, talk about the category of the other and why that uh, has how it's become rather popular, but what's what's wrong with it? What is wrong with that concept of the capital O other? The problem with this kind of capital O other is that uh, it projects a difference onto one site. Um, but the thing is that difference is everywhere. Difference is the basic condition that we have. And difference is, it runs through us. Uh, it runs through what we consider to be ourselves. Uh, we are constituted by a multiplicity of causes uh, that make us who we are, uh, and we're never one thing. And so to use difference as the basis for politics uh, is a tricky thing because it can't end there and that can't be all of it because when we create this kind of self-other distinction, we are actually effacing those differences that are constitutive of each, of each entity. I talk about universality and I advocate a universality but universality does not mean effacing difference. Actually, you can't have universality without difference. Uh, you have to have different people, different sites, different places in which a universal can apply. Uh, by definition, the universal applies in all these different cases. And uh, so, I, I mean, I think we have to remember that when we talk about universality. A universal principle has to be um, something that can be articulated by anyone. But uh, finally, we can't just will away difference and otherness um, and, and claim some kind of abstract universality, can we? I mean, what's the way, um, way, way through that minefield? No, the problem with an abstract universalism, which would rely on maybe a theory of human nature or maybe an idea of kind of abstract person, a person who has abstract and differences, uh, who then is the bearer of rights, like our uh, uh, official documents say, and is, this is the basic assumption of liberalism, that's very problematic because the abstract person doesn't account for all of the, the uh, instances of concrete domination and subordination that exists in a society. Okay, and we know this, this, this is um, absolutely visible in American history with the fact that you know, the idea that we are all endowed by our creator with natural rights is, is put forth by slave owners. So that's a problem. That's not an adequate basis for universality. Uh, and ultimately, it's, it's, it's a kind of political approach, which also means that we are locked into the state because when our rights are violated, we demand that the state protect us. That's basically what this formation of universalism means. And that's something that I think we should reject. And I think that we have to try to talk about a different kind of universality. And, you know, um, many, many people working within philosophy and so on have tried to propose this and, and with great reference to social movements. Uh, you brought up the Haitian Revolution. And there was a moment in which the Haitian Revolution was exposing the the false universalism of the French Revolution, which had proclaimed the rights of man but still held colonies. And the Haitian Revolution then brought its own universalism onto, onto the historical stage. And it's in moments like that, specific moments, moments in which, you know, there are differences, that, uh, in moments in which differences abound, those specific sites are where we can identify the emergence of a universality. It's not something already there, but it is brought into being by revolt. 
That was Assad Haider, author of Mistaken Identity, Race and Class in the Age of Trump, published in May by Verso. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this, a bit of a song Haider mentions in the book, What About the Working Class, by Lyndon Quasi Johnson. Till next week, bye. So what about the working class, Comrade Chairman? What about the working class? They bear the cross, they carry the cross. And them now go to get them tanks in the dance. Them now go to get them tanks. From the east to the west to the land I love the best. The ruling classes, them is in a mess. Oh yes, crisis is the order of the day. The workers, them demanding more pay every day. The peasants want a lot more say nowadays. The youth, them rebelling everywhere. Everywhere, insurrection is the order of the day. There's a lot of people crying out to change nowadays. Nobody blame it on the black working class, Mr. Racist. Blame it on the ruling class. Blame it on your capitalist boss. We pay the cost, we suffer the loss, and we now go to get new cross, not a rust, we now go to get new cross.